Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Hey everyone, good to see you this morning. And, and for those of you who are online, uh, even though I can't see you, it's great that you're with us. Um, let me get, get a chair here. This is my customary pose when I preach. Um, for any of you who may be here for the first time, no, I, I do not have back problems or anything like that. I just like to sit. So uh, as we're looking at this passage today, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the passage that um, Yvonne just read, uh, you know, you hear, you hear things bouncing back and forth between wisdom and foolish, and foolish and wisdom. And my goal today is, is just to take a look at what Paul saw as so important for this Corinthian group, this, this church that he had planted about three or four years before he was writing these words to them. He had some concerns that they were getting sucked into aspects of wisdom that weren't exactly what God's wisdom was. Um, when I first was working on this, I was trying to come up with a name, and I, I came up with the name, which, what, which wisdom is wiser? And then I realized, you know, we already know the answer to that. So basically the name of this is The Wisest Wisdom. And we're going to try to dig in a little bit. Uh, But first, you know, just like Yvonne did in reading the scriptures, um, I want us all to read the scriptures. And yet, we're not going to go back to everything that she just read. But there are five more verses in this passage. And it's in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. So if you would read with me these next five verses. Let's read it in unison. When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters... I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan, for I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clear and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like Paul to me. I mean, when I think of Paul, what what courage it took to be a Paul. You know, he went to places that nobody else had really gone, you know, from his country. Uh, It kind of reminds me of of Rich, you know, who in the world is going to go out in a red van and park in a in a field someplace, and, and, and share the gospel like that. Isn't it wonderful when we meet people who have that kind of courage? But here's Paul who's saying, I came to you, Corinthians, and I came to you timid and trembling. And when you dig into that word, you kind of get the feeling, timid can mean f- fearful. I came to you very fearful, and I came to you broken. I came to you fearful and broken. Wow. Um, That's how Paul entered Corinth. Let's get a little bit of background so we can kind of understand why he might be fearful and broken. Uh, Here's a little map. And this map is, um, just gives us an idea of Greece 
and then on the other side is Asia Minor. Um, you know, in fact, as I look at this, you see that word, uh, that, that city Ephesus. Ephesus is where Paul is writing this letter now, three years after he had first gone to Corinth. Paul is on his third missionary journey. He's come to Ephesus. He's received some visitors from Corinth who have some concerns. So he's looking back three years before when he went to Corinth. Now, oh, there's Ali. Ali Kalkandalin is here. Ephesus is in Ali's home country, Turkey. And, you know, I should just let you all know, it's wonderful to hear the stories of Rich. And you know what? To hear the stories of Ali are very similar. My goodness, uh, when Rich said he's working with a Catholic priest, um, uh, Ali's working with a Catholic priest, and he's ministering in Istanbul. He's working with four different churches. He's working with refugees. Um, he's going to have a lunch after, well, we're all going to have a lunch, and you're all invited, and I just want you to know that after this service down at the Connections Room, if you'd love to hear Ali and Paravan Kalkandalan's story, please come down there and join us. Um, and if it might give you enough time to be able to run to the store, grab something, come back, because we may have to enlarge the meal. Anyway, that's just an aside. It's free. Um, Ephesus is where Paul is writing this letter. And where Paul was, actually, before he came to Corinth, is that other green circle, Athens. Uh, and, and Paul was in Athens. There was a group of people that actually, for his own protection, had escorted him down to Athens and then left him there alone. So he was in the city of Athens, and he was trying to minister. And uh, it says that while he was there, in fact, I'll, I'll show you these verses from Acts 17 that tell the actual story when he was in Athens. While he was there, he was deeply troubled by the idols, all the idols everywhere in the city. Um, okay, in the Greek culture, they believed in a multiplicity of gods. In fact, in Greece, they had 12 major gods but then they had a bunch of minor ones. And you just kind of get the idea, as Paul is walking through Athens, he's seeing one idol after another idol after another idol, and he's becoming more and more concerned for these people. And then he comes across an idol that was actually titled an idol to an unknown God, as if they're trying to cover all their bases. Um, and Paul kind of latches onto that and realizes, wow, that's the God I believe in that unknown God who covers everything. And he uses that to be able to talk uh, to the Athenians. Um, but, you know, it says he went and he went to the synagogue, he went to the marketplace, he started to reason, he went to the philosophers, the Epicurean, the Stoics. Um, when he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what in the world is this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas that he's picked up? And others said, oh, he seems to be preaching about some kind of foreign God. So they took him to the headquarters. They took him to the people that were in charge of all things. Another thing we need to learn about Athens, philosophy. They were big into philosophy. And the word philosophy, you can break down into two words, philo, which means love. You know, you think of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And you got that philo in there. But sofa, which means wisdom. It was the love of wisdom and you probably have to put quotes around that wisdom. It was really the love of ideas. Luke, um, in Acts, says these next words. It was interesting. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. Um, from what I could pick up, there were like 50 different schools of philosophy in Athens. 
Can you imagine that? 50 different schools of philosophy with different ideas of what your destiny is, how to have relationships, all kinds of things like that. And they would sit in the marketplace all day and discuss their ideas. And Paul steps into that. And Paul shares the gospel. Paul shares his truth. Um, and basically, he says, you know, you guys are so religious. I saw a, a, an idol to an unknown God. Let me tell you about that God because I worship him and he goes into how he created all things, how he created all nations, how everything was there. And then he adds this last paragraph, for he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. And when he said those words, the reaction was, when they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. And that ended Paul's discussion with them. Now, it wasn't a total failure. There were a few people that actually became followers of Jesus. But there were a lot more people that laughed in contempt because the wisdom of the cross, the message of the cross, did not fit their concept of what is true wisdom. It did not make sense to the Greek people that God himself would come and put on our flesh, walk among us, allow himself to be crucified, and then rise victorious. No. So Paul is there in, or in Athens, and that's when he decides, okay, it's time to go to Corinth, and he walks alone to Corinth. And when you look at that map, you're probably thinking, I wonder how far that is. That's about 50 miles. It's like walking down to Colorado Springs. But he walked down to Corinth, he arrived at Corinth alone, and he goes into Corinth and he says these words, when I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. And if you remember what uh, we read just a little while ago, he just focused on Christ and Christ crucified. And that brings us back to where we started where Yvonne began to read in verse 18 of chapter 1. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it's the very power of God. And as you look through this passage, it's almost like a ping-pong ball going back and forth and back and forth between foolishness and wisdom and wisdom and foolishness. And those two words, we already said what the word was for wisdom. It's Sophia. But the word for foolishness is moraine which we get the word moron from. And so you almost realize they're calling each other moronic. You're moronic when you believe that. You're moronic because you believe this. And so trying to figure out what is the wisdom that Paul wants us to grab onto. And that next verse, I don't know about you, but it kind of bugs me. That verse says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. Because when I read that, I think, now wait a minute, don't we have a whole book of Proverbs that we're supposed to try to be more and more wise? Um, are we supposed to use our intelligence? God gave us that. He created us with that. Um, or are we just supposed to kind of turn our mind off, become dummy, and worship God and be happy? I think we've got to go back and see. Notice it's got some quotes around it. So this is a quote. So it's Let's go back and see where the context of this quote comes from. And it comes from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. 
And it's a really critical time in the history of Judah, Judah being the southernmost tribes of, of the Jewish people. Um, Israel was the northernmost tribes of the Israelite people. And this was about given in, in 701 BC. And I'll explain a little bit more about how we know the date. You know, because a lot of times we, we kind of speculate when these things were written. But in these verses, I'm going to go to verse 13 and 14. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. Because of this, I will once again astound these hypocrites with amazing wonders. The wisdom of the wise will pass away. The intelligence of the intelligent will disappear. Now, in 701 BC, there was a good king in Judah. His name was Hezekiah. And when I told Carrie I was going to bring in Hezekiah, she goes, oh, good, good. I always told my second graders, good king Hezekiah. Well, he's not so good right now, but we'll find out a little bit more. Um, Hezekiah is the king. When you look at another translation of these verses, actually, it's an ancient translation that was translated into Greek. And this is how they translate that verse 13. might give us a better understanding of what's going on here. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. They teach man-made ideas as commands from God. And, and they've inserted that in saying, God said. But it's really just their ideas. What's the background of this? Um, Twelve years before they received this message from Isaiah, the people of Judah had sat kind of quivering, shaking, because they were watching all their brothers and sisters to the north in the nation of Israel be massacred. The king of Assyria had come with a huge army, and he had wiped out Samaria, and he had wiped out all the cities, and he had deported all the people. Hezekiah at the time was the king down in Jerusalem, and he took a strong stand. He said, I will not give taxes to the king of Assyria. I will trust God to provide for us and to protect us. And for some reason, the king of Assyria turned around and left and did not come down to Jerusalem to attack them. Now, 12 years later, a new king of Assyria came, and he was hell-bent on getting Hezekiah and bending his knee in service to him. And the first thing he did was he destroyed 46 of their walled cities in Judah, and those walled cities were the first line of defense. And he went and he destroyed every one of them, including the largest one, which was called Lachish, which is actually, you can read in history how Lachish was destroyed. Um, every male citizen of Lachish was executed regardless of age. Hezekiah and his advisors and the people of Jerusalem are watching this happen. And the advisors say, okay, Hezekiah, it's time to give in. Give him what he wants. And so he sends an envoy and he says, okay, I will pay your taxes, I will pay your tribute, whatever you desire. Just stop the bloodshed. Isaiah comes to him and says, come on, Hezekiah. I'm, God tells me that he's going to destroy the wisdom of the wise and he's going to take the intelligence of the intelligence and turn it upside down. He's going to do wonders, but you weren't patient enough to wait for it. Hezekiah ended up stripping all the gold and silver from the temple, sent it up to King Sennacherib, and King Sennacherib came down with his army anyway, which was thousands and thousands of troops. And we know that from looking at history. It, it, it tells us about the, 
uh, immensity of the Assyrian army, and they surrounded Jerusalem, and they were saying, we're going to starve you out. Uh, some of you may have been wondering, what's that uh, kind of old-looking uh, uh, paper toweling in the corner? That is, that's actually uh, something called the, the Taylor Cylinder, the Taylor Cylinder, or some people call it Sennacherib's Prism. There was an archaeologist in the mid-1800s who went to Nineveh, and he unearthed um, a library, an Assyrian library, and they found six of these cylinders. That's all cuneiform, and it's all written by the scribes of Sennacherib explaining his military exploits. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. And you know what? It corresponds to Scripture. Uh, it talks about how he went against King Hezekiah. It talks about how he went in and destroyed 46 walled cities. It talks about how he destroyed Lachish. It talks about how he took all the tax money and, and the tribute, and, and he just yeah, took everything from Judah. And then it talks about, I shut up Hezekiah like a caged bird in his royal city, Jerusalem. And guess what? He never tells the end of the story. Um, when you look through these six cylinders, it's one conquest after another after another, one city destroyed after another, one kingdom conquered after another, but he never talks about Judah and the end result. I believe that's because the Bible gives us the final say. And God steps in, and it tells us in, in Isaiah 37, that night the angel of the Lord went out to the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. When the surviving Assyrians woke up the next morning, they found corpses everywhere. King Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp and returned to his own land. He went home to his capital of Nineveh, and he stayed there. What an amazing work of God Almighty. And here are the advisors who told Hezekiah, no, it's time to pay the tax. Come on, we're going to be dead. And God intervened. And he said, my wisdom is far greater. Even though it doesn't make sense, it sounds foolish to you. It sounds foolish. But trust me. And that's what Paul uses to talk to the Corinthians. And so he comes back to the Corinthians and he says, so where does it leave the philosophers, the scholars, the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of the world look Foolish. Hmm. You know, I hear that, and I have to admit, folks, if I were in Hezekiah's shoes, which I'm glad I'm not, I'd do the same thing he did. I'd be scared to death. Seeing an army of over 200,000 soldiers, and that's what Sennacherib said his army consisted of. Surrounding your city, and they're going to crucify every one of you. And yet God had promised he'd take care. Since God in his wisdom saw to us that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It's foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, the Gentiles say, it's all nonsense. And I would just tell you that as Paul is is appealing to the Corinthian uh, Christians. He had gone there three years before, and he had appealed to them merely with the cross of Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit had worked in their midst to be able to bring them into the fellowship of that church. And now, three years later, it seems like other ideas are creeping in, other man-made ideas, other suggestions, other, other ways of explaining what was taking place. 
And Paul's saying, no, go back to the cross. Yes, it seems like moronic to the world. The Jews want signs. The Greeks want wisdom. But here's the cross. Here's the cross. You know, when Jesus walked the earth, he did a lot of miracles. There's, there's no doubt about it. There's no doubt about it. But listen to this verse. Despite all the miraculous signs Jesus had done, most of the people still didn't believe him. Usually I find when we're looking for wonders to be brought into our lives, you know, that gives us enough faith until the next time we need another wonder. If our faith is alone in miracles, it's never going to sustain us. Our faith has to be in something so much deeper. Um, the Jewish people came to Jesus. One day some teachers of the religious law and Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to show us a miraculous sign to prove your authority. But Jesus replied, Only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Which, of course, at that time, they're probably shaking their heads saying, what in the world is that? And Jesus says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the, of the fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the earth. A direct, direct vision of what the cross was going to be and, and, and his resurrection three days later. Of course, they wouldn't know that. But he was saying, believe that. I'm not going to give you a sign just to meet a need that you have. I don't need to prove my authority. My wisdom will trip you up. And to the Greeks, you know, we already saw what Luke said, how the Greeks like to sit there and discuss all the latest ideas. That's where they found authority. Um, Paul comes out with some really strong statements. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies, high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. Wow. So that's 2,000 years ago. What about today? Because I believe Paul's message to us is just as clear right now. Are we susceptible? Do we find ourselves saying, come on, God, deliver us, and we might believe in you a little bit more? Or do we find ourselves kind of listening to some of the ideas that are swirling around us, and we think, wow, that sounds pretty good? Um, two examples, and I'll try to be quick about these. Um, a hero of mine, and I think of many of you sitting here, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And here was this man who was a rising star in the German Lutheran church. Uh, he was a pastor. He was a theologian. He was a professor. Um, but it was also in the 1930s when Hitler was on the rise also. And that whole philosophy of Nazism and the fascist dominance was starting to take over. Bonhoeffer was actually over here in the States teaching. And he decided, I've got to go back to my homeland because I need to speak out against this. So he came back to Germany, and he was a pastor in the German Lutheran Church. And what happened to the German Lutheran Church? You know, we don't hear many voices from them during Hitler's reign, and that scares me. And the things I read, oh, it's tragic. Uh, I, I read that uh, there were Nazi sympathizers who would infiltrate the church, but I also read that there were folks within the church who took the, and espoused the beliefs of the Nazi sympathizers. And it began to spread through the church. Beliefs like, um, hey, if there's any kind of Jewish background in your blood, you cannot be in leadership in the church. And they defrocked numerous pastors and leaders in the church. 
Uh, beliefs like the Old Testament is too much of a Jewish book. It can't be part of the Bible. It has no authority. And eventually, they removed the Old Testament and kind of put it in a separate spot. It was just the New Testament. Teaching like Jesus wasn't Jewish. That's a Jewish lie. The Jews were totally responsible for crucifying our Christ. And the German Lutheran Church became a vehicle of that kind of man-made thinking and ideas. Bonhoeffer spoke out. Bonhoeffer took stands. Bonhoeffer finally had to leave the German Lutheran Church and start his own confessing church. Uh, the, the Nazis came and shut down all the churches. He started a seminary that got uh, destroyed, but then they went underground, and he continued to try and influence his German homeland. Eventually, he was executed because he was uh, found to be part of a plot to end Hitler's life. But Bonhoeffer wrote these words from the cost of discipleship. Oops. Chief grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves, the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. Costly grace, on the other hand, confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. It's costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. It's grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It is costly because it costs a man his life but it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. Folks, I hope the day never comes when we find ourselves swallowing lies like the German Lutheran Church did. I realized they were in a tough situation. They were trying to rebuild after World War I. They were being punished in so many ways and their society was being held back, and they were looking for someone to free them and bring back the glory of the old days. And they threw in with a heretic. Boy, if we're looking for something like this, for, like that, if, if our faith is merely a nationalistic-type faith, we'll fail every time. It must be in Jesus Christ and his cross alone. You know, just quickly, let me sh share just this thing for a... Uh, it was back in 1966, this time issue came out, Is God Dead? I never read that, so I'm, I'm not sure what the article says. But in the same year, Carl Sagan, who we know is a great astronomer, uh, came out with this theory. He said, you know, there's so many. The universe is huge. The universe is huge. And there's like an octillion planets out there, just like our Earth. There must be life in our universe. And in fact, there's so many planets, there must be about a septillion planets that have life. So let's start searching for it. This is what a septillion looks like. So that started SETI, S-E-T-E, S-E-T-I, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And guess what? Your, your and my tax dollars paid for much of that. Um, and they used all kinds of technology they had in the day. They used all kinds of radioscopic type things, uh, trying to go deeper and deeper into the universe to find and hear just that little vestige of life. So they knew there would be life out there. And they searched and searched and searched. And finally, you know, the silence was deafening. There was nothing. And so in 94, 1994, the United States finally pulled the funding but there was private funding that kept it going, and they're still continuing today, searching for that life that might be out there in the universe someplace. As they search, 
they've discovered new and new things. They've discovered, far from having overwhelming opportunities for life out there, it began to dwindle, 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 and they realized, wow, in order to have life, things are so fine-tuned, boy, the options are against life out there. In fact, the, the, the probability of life being able to be here on Earth is minus, minus, minus. Earth is a miracle that it even has life because the fine-tuning is so balanced. One of the guys who actually directed SETI was Paul Davies down at Arizona State University. He said this word, there is for me powerful evidence that there's something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. And that's something. God's wisdom will be known. Now, I'm not saying that Paul Davis, Davies has given his life to Jesus Christ and is a follower of, of Christianity. No, he's not. He's still trying to find life out there someplace. But at least he's come to this idea that there must be a, a, an intelligence that has created all this. I can just imagine the Holy Spirit saying, oh, it's about time. Um, anyway, the foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. When you look at the word of the cross, when you look at the logos of the cross, it makes no sense to the Greeks or the Gentiles because to them, a, a, a God does not, one, put on human flesh, and a God does not submit to death. You look at the Jews, and they said, there's no way, there's no way God would ever be hung on a cross. And yet for us, God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. That's that last verse of that section. And the, the version that Yvonne read kind of takes those last little things and gives them some theological structure. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. The cross, the logos of the cross, the story of the cross is our righteousness, our sanctification, which means we have become holy, and our redemption. Isn't that amazing? So I've wondered, how do you best explain that? I mean, those are theological terms, yes. And I know we're going a little bit over time. Hey, I'll try to be quick about this. But, you know, one of the things I've really appreciated for this series, thank you, Alex, is that um, Aaron put the cross back up here in the middle of our platform. And I think one of the things we need to get back in the habit of doing is going to the cross going to the cross. And I would just encourage you to do that. As I approach the cross, I think of the logos of the cross. I think of the words of the cross, and it's in those words that I hear from the cross that I see righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. As I approach this cross, I hear Jesus saying, Father, 
forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. In fact, as I approach the cross, I, I picture Jesus looking down at me and saying, Father, forgive Dan. He doesn't know how his disobedience hurts us so much. We love him. Father, forgive him. Forgive him for those times that um, he used people to get his own way instead of being able to see them as our wonderful creation that we've given him to live amongst. Father, forgive him for those times that Dan slips into, into greed and, and wants more money for security and fails to hear that promise, I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to provide everything for you. And I don't know what he would say to you. But I would encourage you, come to the cross and hear him say those words, Father, forgive that person. Forgive you. You don't know what you're doing. And then as I approach the cross, I, I remember how there's two, two criminals on each side. And, and one of those criminals is making fun of Jesus. The other one says, don't you fear God. Don't you fear God. We deserve to be on these crosses. He doesn't. He's innocent. He hasn't done anything that he's been accused of. And then he says, Jesus, today, please remember me in your kingdom. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, today, you will be with me in paradise. And that's a criminal. That's a criminal who's being executed for his crimes. And Jesus says, today, I'm making you holy and pure so that you can join me in the presence of God Almighty in my paradise. And he says the same thing to me, Dan. You're going to join me in paradise because I'm on the cross covering you. You are holy. You are sanctified. Last week, Alex talked to, about uh, positional sanctification and progressive sanctification. And you know, like that criminal, he was positionally sanctified right then. And he was ushered into the presence of God because he was holy and pure. You know what? Boy, when I gave my life to Jesus Christ and surrendered and said, I believe, he made me sanctified just like that. I was holy and pure, but I still had a life to live. Not like the criminal, but I have years to live, I hope. Um, but what a great challenge to be able to live those, those years in obedience to God out of recognition of his love and his work already. You are holy. You are sanctified. You are righteous. You are made right in the eyes of God because of the cross. And when I approach the cross, I see those final words, it is finished. It is finished. You are redeemed. And as I look at the eyes of Jesus looking at me, I hear him saying, Dan, stop trying so hard. Hey, it's finished. It's over. There's no more work that needs to be done. You are righteous. You are sanctified. You are redeemed. There's nothing more you can do to make me love you anymore. There's nothing more that you can do to make me not love you. I am your savior. I would tell you, the cross makes no sense to the world. Yes, Jesus said some other words on the cross. He said, I thirst. And he said, um, my God, why have you forsaken me? I can hear the angst in his voice. And he says, woman, here's your son. 
And you know, in those words I hear, that's just what trips up the world. How can God become man and actually thirst? How can God actually feel alone and desperate? And yet Jesus did that for us. And in the midst of doing that, he still lived in relationship. Wow. The message of the cross is foolishness to the world. But for those of us who believe, for those of us who believe, it is life eternal. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. And I would challenge us. Remember Christ crucified. I'll be the first one to say I'm going to emphasize the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I'm so glad that he rose victoriously from the dead three days later. But I'm also going to say I need to be reminded to get to the resurrection, I've got to go through the crucifixion. And it's in that crucifixion that our righteousness was won, our sanctification was won, and our redemption was complete. May we never, ever forget that. You know, we've gone long again. So I guess we're not going to sing a final song. But I thank you for your patience to stay and listen. And I want to encourage you. Go to the cross. Go to the cross. You're not going to re-crucify Jesus. It was once and done. But hear him say those words of forgiveness. Hear him say those words of holiness. Hear him say those words of completion. Go to the cross and remind yourselves that Jesus loves me in the ultimate way and has brought purpose and meaning to my life. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, oh, I thank you. I think of Paul going to Corinth kind of broken and fearful and, and saying he was not going to sit there and try to argue and debate with all the wise people down there in Greece, but he was just going to proclaim your death and your crucifixion and your resurrection. And Lord, I thank you for that and what an example it is to us today. May we not be fearful of people's inflated and ideas that sometimes seem intimidating to us. And Lord, may we never be sucked into falseness that would sneak into our church, but may we always go to your cross and allow your cross to expose your wisdom and reveal the depths of depravity that are around us. Oh, and fill us with the love to go minister in those places. We love you, Father. Thank you. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org slash give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.